Welcome to Parenting Refreshed, an original podcast from UNICEF that explores the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic on parents, caregivers, and children. From mental health and technology to climate change, immunization, war, and the health issues of tomorrow. Each episode features experts in that field informing us about the latest information that science and experience has to offer. That is why UNICEF Parenting brings together some of the world's leading experts to share facts, helpful tips, and practical guidance. Information that parents can trust to help give their children the best start in life. Head to unicef.org forward slash parenting. Today, we're with Dr. Celine Gounder, who's going to be discussing the global health issues to track over the coming years, the biggest challenges to healthcare, and by looking back at how previous generations dealt with the health issues of their day. What can we learn from those experiences? So let's meet her. My name is Dr. Celine Gounder. I'm an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist, as well as a medical journalist. So I wear a lot of hats. I work with public health leaders as an advisor, both at the city level in New York City and at the national level. Talking to Dr. Celine Gounder is Professor Nadia Durback. Hi, I'm Nadia Derbach, and I am a professor of history at the University of Utah. I specialize in modern British history and what I like to call history of the body, which is a very inclusive category that includes medicine, sexuality, labor. We can learn an enormous amount from the past and help us to plan better futures. So let's start by looking at how health trends have changed since the COVID-19 pandemic, and what will be the biggest challenges to healthcare in the future? The health issues of tomorrow parallel the ways in which the world is changing, whether that's population growth, climate change, changes in technology and disinformation, new and emerging infectious diseases, globalization, and war and conflict. So this is a very challenging time for all of us to be navigating the world and navigating the future of our health. Personally, I think one of the biggest challenges to health in the future will be climate change. We know that climate change will have profound ramifications for everyone's health. Climate change is not one of those problems that individuals can solve, but parents banding together can really make a big difference, making their voice heard and their concerns communicated to their elected officials. Nadia, I think you have a slightly different take, which is managing growing inequality. Yeah, for me as a historian, obviously climate change is enormously important, but I always like to put everything in the larger and longer frame. And for me, it always points back to inequalities. 
what I always like to kind of think about is taking these problems really in a very long context and really understanding that when we try to address climate change, what we really are trying to address is global inequalities that have very long histories and that I expect will have legacies well into the future. Some of the other health threats on the horizon, again, are tied to inequality, climate change, whether that's extreme weather, drought, famine, conflict, especially in environments where there are other stressors like scarcity of food. How would you apply some of that same thinking to some of these other health challenges and not just pandemics? I'm also a historian of food, and I think it's very obvious that both within national borders, but obviously across those national borders, there's really inequalities in access to good quality and healthy food. The way we distribute food around the world will be a really big challenge and one that's really, really essential, both to climate change, because we need to start growing different kinds of food, but also to ensuring equality, because a lot of disease preys on bodies that are poorly nourished. One of the reasons why we think think the flu pandemic that began in 1918 was so devastating was because it came on the heels of the First World War, where nutrition was a really big problem. Um, Before the First World War, there was a global exchange of food. Few countries were growing their own. And with the war and the blockade, so the British blockaded Germany, the German population almost starved to death. And so bodies were really, really impacted by nutrition during the war, and that made them susceptible to a new um, a new virus that they had not experienced before. And so the links between nutrition and disease are really clear. And so I think one of the ways in which we can try and solve health inequality is also trying to solve nutritional inequality. There are a number of different threats we can anticipate from climate change with respect to health. So there's the impact on food supply, extreme weather events, flooding, drought, emerging infectious diseases, as we saw quite obviously with the COVID pandemic, one of the major mitigation measures we have to deal with emerging infectious diseases and pandemics are vaccines. And it's been very challenging over the past couple of years in any number of settings to encourage and and convince people to get vaccinated. What are some of the lessons from that experience for the future of pandemics? That does have to do with the question of inequality. People who have been shut out of access to healthcare, when they are suddenly provided with it, free from the government, they become suspicious. And so I think we can understand why so many people who have felt marginalized by the healthcare system are suddenly suspicious when it's being offered to them for free. And they're suspicious both of the government and and of the medical profession as well, of science as an institution. And so I think we have to be really alive to the feelings, these long legacies, global legacies of inequality, of access and treatment that really shape the way in which people react then to new technologies. Children are you know, children born today are digital natives. They live a lot of their lives in the digital virtual world. Uh, Parents being vulnerable to mis and disinformation, but misinformation is incorrect information that may be spread accidentally, but it's not with an intent 
to misinform people, it, it is unintentional. Whereas disinformation is incorrect information that is spread for someone's benefit. It might be for a financial profit, it might be for political advantage, but it is with intent. How do we educate kids to be more savvy about the information that they're consuming online, in particular with respect to their health? I think this is a huge challenge and it has to be part of what we're teaching students in the schools is how to figure out what is reliable information and what is not. And that's one of the central things that I do with my students in a university context is to try to help them understand what we can trust in terms of reliable information and what we need to question. So that when students go online, their teachers are showing them what is the difference between a website produced by the Centers for Disease Control Control or by UNICEF, and what is a website that is produced by someone who you cannot even identify. And so teaching our young people today really to know how to deal with information is really crucial. And that is something we're teaching our history students all the time, is how to manage all the information you find, both about the past and about the present, because we're living in a world in which we're not all just watching one reliable TV news station as you know, previous generations were doing. And unfortunately, social media puts us in a quite a different position today than in the past. Now, there were always people publishing pamphlets, disseminating misinformation. That's been a constant through history, idle gossip. It's very hard for people to weed out misinformation on the internet, to know which sites are reliable in part because the knowledge is changing all the time. And so we're in a situation as parents where we're trying to get information, but we don't know where to turn. And then that opens the door to conspiracy theorists, to misinformation in ways that I think have been really magnified because of social media. You mentioned um, schools and education has certainly been disrupted over the course of the pandemic. A lot of parents, a lot of students are anxious about being back in school. And one of the many things that they're anxious about is vaccination status of perhaps other students in the classroom. Can you talk a little bit about how that's played out with prior infectious diseases, vaccine preventable diseases? Yeah, this is a really interesting issue. And I think taking the hard line that everybody has to be vaccinated has historically and in the present actually proved really counterproductive because what it's ended up doing is actually ramping up resistance. I think it's really important for people to feel like they're empowered and that they have agency in these situations. I think it is especially scary and anxiety provoking when you feel like this is happening to you and you have no control. Arming children with the tools to understand what is happening and to engage in the civic process to be a part of solutions is really important to having that sense of agency. We saw that in the 19th century when vaccination was um, first made compulsory in Britain. We see a really strong anti-vaccination movement emerging, and it's really emerging in relationship to the idea of compulsion, that this is mandatory for everybody. And actually, as soon as the British government introduced exemptions, allowing people to decide for themselves, we saw that movement decline precipitously. So when you gave people a choice, but you educated the public about getting vaccinated, actually resistance to the procedure declines. 
You're listening to UNICEF Parenting Refreshed, a series of podcasts looking at different aspects of parenting in a world transformed by the COVID-19 pandemic. We're currently looking at parenting and the health issues of tomorrow with infectious disease specialist, Dr. Celine Gounder and history professor, Nadia Derbach, who specializes in the history of the body and we're going to talk about pandemic preparedness, vaccinations, and the positive aspects of healthcare in the future. Just a reminder that if you're affected or curious about any of the issues we're discussing, then please head to unicef.org forward slash parenting for support, advice, and more podcast episodes like this one. Smallpox was the first infectious disease for which we had a vaccine, for which we did vaccinate people. Uh, and there's this long history of resistance to vaccination. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of those early days? Yeah, so as soon as vaccination became available, the British government began to promote it. And they then made it compulsory um, starting in 1853. And we have almost immediately a resistance movement. But I think for people in the 19th century, it was also really confusing. The science was really in its infancy. Not a lot of people could actually explain how a vaccination works. And I think we're in quite a different situation today. I think most people on the street would be able to describe the process through which vaccination works in the body in some kind of basic way. Whenever there is a new technology or a new disease that's really frightening to people, they don't know how to assess that risk. And what people in the 19th century were facing was this idea that there is a procedure that's new, but it is itself risky. Do I know that that is a better risk to be taking? But the difference really in the 19th century is epidemic disease was really widespread. Many, many children died before their fifth birthday. Today, because of vaccine prevention, so most of the childhood diseases, there are vaccines for, and so we're not very accustomed to see children dying of epidemic disease. So that means for us today, the vaccine always appears more risky than the disease because we have very poor experience with epidemic disease. And I'm hoping that when we come out of the COVID pandemic, one of the lessons we will have learned is that these diseases are really scary, right? They can kill and it's very unclear who will be the most susceptible. And so I think one of the lessons of this is again, how do, how do we help people assess risk? And I think in the 19th century, parents had a much better sense of the effects of epidemic disease than they do today. And so this maybe will um, remind us that new diseases can evolve. They will be unexpected. Our bodies will not know how to deal with them. And we will hopefully be able to evolve vaccines for them, but that we will always be assessing what is the kind of riskier thing to take the vaccine or to try and sort of see how we are affected by that disease. And I know a lot of people don't choose to get vaccinated against the flu because they're making that calculation. Once I had children, I started to get the flu vaccine every year because I was calculating my risk differently. 
We're now seeing uh, the reemergence of polio in various parts of the world. What is driving that reemergence? Is this a reflection of social, political, cultural issues, or is this just globalization? I think it's a lot of things. It's probably um, globalization and the movement of peoples. Much easier to get anywhere and diseases to kind of be hitchhikers on the backs of people traveling globally with few restrictions these days. We're still very much in a model in which nations are promoting the health of their citizens in whatever ways they see fit and not really attending to this as a global issue. And one of the things I think that COVID really did, it exposed in very concrete ways that borders are not important to organisms, that microbes travel around the world and closing the border between nations doesn't actually help us. And yet we still very much operated in this pandemic as if we could exist with national policies as opposed to global ways of dealing with disease. But I also think that people have got complacent about keeping up with vaccines. And that's because, again, they don't see epidemic disease. They've not seen polio. They've not seen measles. I mean, certainly what happened with measles is that they've not seen it. They didn't stop thinking of it as a serious disease because they hadn't been exposed to it. We've just been through a traumatic collective experience, worldwide experience with COVID. Are there other moments in history where people went through something like this, whether it's at a national level or at a global level, as we have with COVID, where there were positive outcomes that came out of that tragedy? Well, disease, it's hard to think of any of these kind of global pandemics as positive in any way. I could just say one thing might be to think about the ways in which after the Black Death in the 1300s is that wages for everyday, regular, ordinary people go up. And that's unfortunately because of depopulation. So mass death leads to labor shortages, but labor shortages um, based on the principles of supply and demand mean that people's wages go up. If there's less population, they're more in demand. Another way I might answer that question, and I want to be careful about how I do this when talking about something like HIV AIDS, is that what that pandemic did, I think, is make LGBTQ plus communities really visible. It really focused attention, again, on the ways in which the healthcare communities had not attended to their particular vulnerabilities or access to health care of sexual minority populations. That made sense to me as somebody who's worked in HIV. So how can parents be talking to their kids about these connections, both for their own health, but also um, as members of their communities? I think we need to talk with our children about what we are doing in the context of the family, but also what they can do as well. So not shielding them from the realities, but discussing the small ways in which you can make a difference at home and in your world, whether that's the food you're eating, going to the ballot box and voting for people you think will make change, but actually thinking about everything they do can be a small contribution to change. One of the things that was really came to the fore for me as a parent throughout the COVID pandemic that we're still in is talking to my kids about the relationship between oneself and one's own body and the rest of the community. What the pandemic did was to require us to think about the relationship between our own bodies and the bodies of people in the community. 
how we are not only protecting ourselves, but in doing certain activities like wearing a mask and getting vaccinated, we are protecting other people as well. So I think the first route to teaching our children about how to think about equity and equality issues is to teach them to think about the relationship between themselves and their wider community. I really tried to emphasize with my kids, at least, why we are wearing a mask. It is not just for ourselves. It is for other people, why we are getting vaccinated. And to think about the risks involved, not only in relationship to our own health, but the kind of idea of pooled or shared risk. That yes, it is true that someone might have an adverse reaction to a vaccination, but it's a shared risk we're taking. The more people that are getting themselves vaccinated, the more healthy other people can be. There are a few things parents can be doing to help ensure their children have a healthy future. Some of those are at the individual level, so that might be making sure your child is up to date with vaccinations or is educated about how to safely use social media platforms. Some of this is at a community or group level where parents can be fighting, for example, for uh, regulations to make social media platforms safer for their kids, as has been done in places like California in the U.S. and in Europe in the EU. Over the course of the pandemic, we've seen childhood vaccination rates drop around the world leaving us vulnerable to infectious disease outbreaks, whether that's measles or polio or even COVID. We've also seen many children drop out of school, and this impact has been especially profound for young girls. We know that staying in school is important for the health of that young girl, as well as for the health of her family and her children in the future. The pandemic has also created a rise in mental health issues, anxiety, depression, both among parents as well as children. This is a time of great uncertainty, which is fueling many of those mental health issues. Just as health is very much a product of political, social, economic, cultural factors, I think the positive developments may also be political, economic, social, cultural developments, whether that is, for example, in East Asian countries, after SARS and avian flu, they really became much more diligent about mask wearing in winter months. I'm not sure that that will be something that Western societies do, but I am hopeful that there will be some evolution in in how we protect ourselves against pandemics in the future and that there is adaptation of some kind. Thank you so much for joining me, Nadia. Bye, Celine. This podcast was produced by Ashley Clivery. Subscribe wherever you're hearing this so that you know when new episodes of Parenting Refreshed become available or head to the website for more information, unicef.org forward slash parenting. Whilst you're there, you'll also find other episodes in the series, including discussions around parenting and mental health. Mental health is not about feeling good. You're not mentally healthy because you feel good. Technology. Try not to say no. Try to find a way for yes to be good for everyone and immunization. There are a lot of 
vaccines with good and new technologies nowadays that you can prevent several diseases in different ages, but for regret, there's no vaccine. <laughs>